questions afterwards. Okay. Right. Go on, man. Well, thanks so much for having me back after last year. I'm surprised. Um, <laughs> uh, like, like was mentioned, I'm a screenwriter and a comedy writer for a living. Um, and the, there was some autocorrect in there. The show that I'm the creator of is called The PKs. Um, so we, uh, not, not the PBS. I don't know. I said autocorrect when I texted it. Um, about, it's about a pastor's family using humor to survive the fishbowl of ministry. I think you guys will appreciate it. But um, I, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. But one of the things, because of my job, I watch a lot of movies. So kids, if you want to grow up and watch a lot of movies and get paid for it, become a screenwriter. Um, but it, that means that a lot of the things that uh, a lot of the references I'll use and, and uh, stories and examples will come from movies and some TV shows. And so I wanted to start off by just finding out what stuff you guys have seen um, so that I can know what to reference and what to not reference. Um, just because I say a movie, this is just an aside, just because I say a movie doesn't mean it's a full endorsement. It probably does, but that's really for your parents to decide, kids. So the first movie, so raise your hand if you've seen a, a movie when I say it, right? So how many of you guys have seen The Incredibles? Okay, good. Okay, that's good. The Lion King? Okay, okay, good, good. Predator? Okay, okay, good, good. Um, Cowboys versus Aliens? Okay, good. All right, we got at least a few people. Um, uh, the, uh, Finding Nemo? Uh, the Iron Giant? Oh, okay, so we got some people that know the Iron Giant. Um, the, uh, the Michael Bay reboots of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Okay, the second one in particular. The first one, eh, not so great. The second one, okay. Now you guys have homework. The second of the reboot of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was really good. Um, uh, Hellboy, the first one, not the new one. That's, the new one's terrible, but the original. Okay, okay, not so many. All right, I'll have to keep some of the references at the Pixar level, it looks like. Okay. <laughs> I, I won't, just to warn you. Sorry. <laughs> um, but I do want to start out with a couple of scriptures, right? I want to start out with a couple of different scriptures, and we're going to be talking, uh, over the next three talks, we're going to be talking about justification and two talks on sanctification. And if you immediately say, oh, I'm going to feel guilty all weekend now, <laughs> hopefully that's not how this comes out. We're going to be um, trying to look at justification and sanctification through the lens of storytelling so that we can understand how to really apply some of the deep, most foundational truths um, about the Christian life uh, in ways that um, we often don't because the way that the, the world tells us to think about our lives um, tends to be in a materialistic way about physics and biology and and we um, and really what they're offering is a different story altogether and so we take things that are beautiful glorious wonderful truths that change our lives and we uh, misplace them because we put them into the wrong story and so that's what we're going to be talking about 
Um, but I want to start with just a couple of uh, scriptures, one from Genesis 3 and one from Matthew 27, to begin framing our first conversation about justification. So in Genesis 3, 24, the author of Genesis wrote, wrote this. He, God, God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In Matthew 27, when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus cried out again with a loud noise, with a loud voice, and yielding up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now, tomorrow... We're going to be talking about the deep, deep connection between beauty and wisdom and sanctification and our identity in Christ tomorrow morning. Tomorrow night, we'll be talking about the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and how to tell the same story about your life that God is telling with your life. Right? Just for a preview, tomorrow we're going to be talking about um, beauty and wisdom and storytelling. T today, though, tonight, I want to talk to you about something that um, in screenwriting is called setting the outer boundaries. Now, if you're writing a movie, if you're writing a novel, if you're telling a story, one of the things that you find um, that a lot of screenwriters do is they write out the gate, they give you a small little snippet of a scene that sets what's called the outer boundaries of the world, the, the limitations that they're not going to go beyond when they, are, when they show up to solve whatever problem it is they're going to um, tell you at the end. Um, and when, you're making, when, when you're telling a story, it's important to know what kind of world the story is being told in. A writer sets up how far they're allowed to go to solve problems with the opening scene um, by setting up what kind of world the characters live in. How many of you have seen Ghostbusters, the first Ghostbusters? There's an old, old movie from the 80s. Um, and, but if you, watch, if you go back and you watch it, the, the opening scene has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. They're in the downtown New York library. By the way, I, I got to uh, go visit the original set of Ghostbusters just a few months ago with the... The, uh, and it's as, it's as amazing as you might expect it to be. Turned it into a little museum in downtown New York. Um, but the, the opening of the movie is in the New York Public Library, downtown New York Public Library, big, beautiful building, and everyone's just sitting around, and the librarian is shushing people, shh, as librarians are taught to do when they get their master's degree in library science. It's a whole class on shushing. And uh, this the librarian goes down into the basement, and and it it starts to get creepier and creepier, and pretty soon, a ghost jumps out in the basement of the library. And then it cuts to four scientists doing their thing, and you meet the different characters, and that scene has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. They don't go to the library, they don't solve anything, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with it, other than the fact that it has now told you what kind of world this movie takes place in. It's the kind of world where a ghost might jump out of the basement stacks of the New York Public library. It's a ghost story. 
The Emperor's New Groove. How many of you have seen that movie? A great movie. There are very few perfect movies in the world. That is one of them. And it, it opens with a llama crying in the wilderness, in the jungle, right? <laughs> and it turns out, you learn right out the gate, that it turns out that it's actually the emperor who's been turned into a llama. Well, why do they start there in the middle of the story? Well, because they want you to know that this is the kind of story where a little pink magic potion might turn someone into an animal. It might turn Yzma into a cat. It might turn the emperor into a llama. And it might, you might just pull the wrong lever, cronk. Right? <laughs> the movie Predator, some of you have seen this. It's a movie about some Vietnam War vets. For some reason, they're in the jungle with incredibly large machine guns. Nobody's sure why, but the first five seconds of the movie is from outer space, and a spaceship flies by. And it's a long time before you meet any aliens, but they want you to make sure, they, they want you to know this is the kind of story where an alien just might show up in the jungle. Right? Tangled. Right? My wife said, you got to get a story in here about a girl. Because otherwise, all the guys are going to be like, justification predator. We're in. <laughs> Tangled. Right, right out the gate, you learn it's a world of magic, hair, and songs. That's a great, that's a great movie with some great music. All sort of, um, but you learn right out the gate, magic hair and songs that roll back curses. So when you get to the end and he's going to solve the problem, uh, you know that one of the things that he's got in his toolbox, the writer, is magic songs and magic hair. Uh, you, you, all, all sorts of movies start this way where they set the outer boundaries, the limitations on the world. Uh, you, if, if you were to... Oh, watch Sleepless in Seattle, right? You're watching Sleepless in Seattle and you're going right along. It's a romantic comedy, kids. Ugh, it's a kissing movie. But if you're watching it and all of a sudden an alien shows up to give Tom Hanks dating advice because he's been out of the scene for so long, you would say, wait a second. This is not that kind of story. This is not that kind of world. An alien doesn't just get to show up because you need somebody to show up and give advice. Uh, you, have to set the, you have to set the limitations on what kind of world a story is being told in, which is why Star Trek has such a great opening. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission, which only took three years, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Right? It's a great opening scene that set the, a great opening moment, a great opening that takes about seven seconds to set the kind of world you live in. Space, there's going to be aliens, there's going to be civilizations, and the people are going to be traveling around, exploring them, going where no man has gone before. Now, when we start talking about our own lives, we have an outer boundary in our imagination of what kind of world we think we live in. 
the outer, outer boundary of the, of the kind of world that we believe that this story that God is telling is taking place in. And it's almost always completely invisible to us. We can't see our own outer boundaries. The, the story that we would consider realistic, right? we, it's really hard to see that. Right? We, when we hear, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, smelly hole, and not a dry and a sandy hole, but when it's a hobbit hole, that means comfort. Right? And then wizards show up. We immediately say, fantasy. That's a fantasy world. That world is not like our world, because that world, you can have, at the turning of the tides, you can have Gandalf show up with his sword and his staff, and having come back from having defeated the Balrog in the depths of Hades, right? You, you can have that in that sort of world. But the what kind of world do we think we live in? Well, we get it. We get our outer boundaries as Christians. We get it from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis 6, and we get it from the end, and we get it from the cross. Those are the places, because we're told that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. Right? We get our outer boundaries from the beginning and the end of the story. And God created the whole world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Where he created, he formed, and he filled the heavens and the earth in order to make a good and suitable home for our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? who were made in his image. There's a lot of things that means, being made in the image of God. But the thing I want to talk about today is that that means we are made for fellowship. We're the kind of creature that can have fellowship with God. Now, the problem is, Adam and Eve, they were placed in a garden that God were prepared for them. But, but God also told them, don't eat of that fruit in there, right? that, that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that they were going to eat of it, they would surely die. Now, let me tell you one of the things that this outer boundaries of this story contains. Because that old dragon that was in the garden with Adam or, and Eve, he shows up with lies on his tongue, telling a different story, telling a different set of outer boundaries than the one God had just said. God said, this is the kind of world you live in. Here's a garden. You can make the rest of this place into a garden. If you are fruitful yourself, the world will become fruitful. If you multiply, you can get out there and turn this whole place into a garden. And Satan comes in with a different set of outer boundaries. He says, you know, I can tell you that this is the kind of world where you could become God. It's a different kind of world altogether. While Adam stood by and listened in on the lies that the dragon told Eve, his thankfulness is replaced with envy and idolatry. And rather than picking up a rock and smashing in the face of the dragon, kids, that's what you do with dragons. Well, hopefully you find them when you're little so you can just step on them. Don't let them grow too big. If they grow too big, then you need weapons. God already gave you one good weapon right down here. You can find the dragons when they're small. But instead, he took the fruit that he was told not to eat from the hand of his wife, and he sinned. 
And he gave himself and all his descendants into the hands of death, into the hands of sin. Now, from the very beginning, God begins to show his grace. They were supposed to die right out the gate, but instead an animal dies on their behalf and they're given skins. But they were then exiled from the garden. Kids, who do you remember? Who remembers? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What were we created for? What do you remember? I think I heard half the word. Who, who could help her? Who remembers? Just shout it out. <laughs> sneezes. It's perfect timing. That was, that was a, a punchline I didn't know I needed. I love it. That is so true and not the answer I'm looking for, right? For fellowship. Remember, we're made in the image of God, which means we can have fellowship with him, right? He, we can be uh, friends with him. We can have a relationship with him. Turns out we can even be adopted into his family because we're made in his image. But the problem is because we sinned, we were kicked out of the garden. We were exiled from the garden. And who knows what God put in the, in the way in front of the door, An angel with a flaming sword. But it's not just any flaming sword. It's a flaming sword that goes both directions, like Darth Maul, right? His, if you remember, his, he has a flaming sword that goes both directions, right? And, and they put these two cherubim right there in the way so that they couldn't get back in and do what they were created to do, which was have fellowship with God. So even though they were alive, it was now a sort of living death. Because the thing that they were made for, they couldn't accomplish. And so they sat out there and they sang Simon and Garfunkel songs <laughs> about being ejected from reality. Romans 5 tells us more about this. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, this is the kind of world that we live in. Here are some of the outer boundaries that are set. It's the kind of world where Adam, one man, can sin, and that sin can affect everything, everywhere, and spread to the very ends of the earth. In fact, we can be born on the opposite side of the world 6,000 years later, and his sin uh, across space and time continues to affect us. They were, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, separated from their most central uh, reason for existence. And there were flaming swords guarding the way back to the tree of life. Now, the original Garden of Eden was destroyed in the flood, right? If that's, that's why we can't go back there anymore, um, because it was destroyed in the flood. Otherwise, we'd be able to go back there, and I'm sure we would have turned it into a museum by now and, and all that. And, uh, but instead... Uh, since we can't go back there, God gave us reminders all throughout history. Kids, how many of you for school or adults for school or for just fun have ever built a small version of the tabernacle or the temple right? out of graham crackers or something? That's what I made mine of because then and you use frosting because then you can eat it at the end because there ain't nothing better than graham crackers and frosting. Right? right? What are... <laughs> what? <coughs> 
What are some of the buildings with the tabernacle and the temple? A, lot, a bunch of you raised your hands. Apparently it wasn't a very effective assignment. We know not to do that one next year for homeschool. We, we got a, what's the, what's the out, outward, outside called? Almost. <laughs> not even close. The holy place. Remember, we have the holy place. It's at the outside. And then what's the one inside called? Oh, holy of holies. Perfect. The holy of holies, exactly. <clears throat> God told uh, uh, Moses to have the people build a tabernacle. And there was a holy place, which was a tent on the outside. And then inside, you had the holy of holies. And on the, the east side of the holy of holies, there was a big veil that he was told to make. This is in Exodus 36, 35. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. He made it. Right? God told them to, to, to put right on the veil between them and the Holy of Holies, cherubim. Sew them right on there. He says, don't forget, you can't come into my presence. You're still at a distance from me. Because if you come in, you're going to die. Because God is holy and you are not holy. Well, eventually the tabernacle is replaced by the temple. In 2 Chronicles 3.14, they made, they made a new holy of holies that was permanent. So the, the, instead of a tent that they carried around with them, they made a holy of holies that was permanent. But they're told to make a bigger veil. It has to be twice as tall because the holy of holies is twice as big. But they're told to make the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linens and to make cherubim on it. God wanted them to remember that they had been kicked out of the garden, that they couldn't come into his presence. And eventually, they had to build a second temple because the first one got knocked down. And, but, and it, was, it was small, and some of the people that had seen the original temple cried. They said, but it's so much smaller. But then Ezekiel was given a vision of what the temple really, really was like spiritually, even though it looked small. Ezekiel says, it's it's." That The original temple, it's cubed, it's big, it's huge because of what God is going to do with it. God himself is going to put his feet, uh, put his feet on the ground of this temple, on the floor of this temple. And Ezekiel says, let me tell you about it. And one of the first things he does is he says, the temple is built like this and it's built like that. But look out, there are cherubim guarding the door. Don't go in there, you'll die. Once a year, the, the, the high priest was allowed to go in there, but he wasn't even allowed to bring lights. It had to be dark in there because it wasn't a safe place for people made in the image of God that were descendants of Adam. Now, that is the temple that was standing when Jesus shows up. The beginning of his ministry, he shows up and he goes up to that temple and he cleanses the temple and he says, my, house, uh, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. Not a house where you're buying and selling. And at the end of his ministry, he comes back again right before the last week of his life. And he goes up and he says, I already told you, don't act like this in the temple. And he cleanses it again. So three years apart, he cleanses the temple two times. And then 
he uh, goes up to the Garden of Gethsemane and he begins to pray. And he says, tomorrow I'm going to be arrested. And that, that week, he is arrested. He is put on trial. He is, even though he's innocent of every crime and he's innocent of every sin, he is declared to be guilty. And he is beaten by the guards and he's mocked by the guards, and they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they make him carry his own cross up to the top of Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he's nailed to the cross, and then he is put up where everyone, where everyone can see. And as he hangs on the cross, some people mock him, others defend him, there are people that are confused. The sun goes out. There's an earthquake. And he breathes out his last breath and yields up his spirit. And that curtain on that temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain with the cherubim on it is torn in two from top to bottom. Because Jesus was becoming our new Adam. He was taking that sin of the first Adam onto himself and then the sin of all of the descendants of Adam that would follow him onto himself. He was taking all that death onto himself, all of those curses onto himself, and he was taking them into the grave. And one of the things that he took onto himself was the distance between us and God. The distance between us and God because of our sin. The crucifixion tore that veil. So there are no longer cherubim guarding the presence of God. They've returned to the throne room of God where they respond when we say, when we sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise, praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him again, ye heavenly hosts. And they say, oh, that's us. Right? And they join into the worship service with us. You might not have known that. The cherubim are sitting in the pews with us now. When we sing the doxology, they, they're waiting for their part. Because they're no longer guarding the presence of God. Because when Jesus died on the cross, our sin and our offense was taken away. Revelation 2, 7 Jesus says, to the ones who conquer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And at the end of, chapter, of Revelation, when John is describing what he sees, he says, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yield its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So now that's one of the things that the church does as it spreads throughout the world, as it offers the tree of life for the healing of the nations, there are no longer cherubim guarding the presence of God. Because after Christ's atoning death on the cross, we're welcome into the presence of God. After 4,000 years of distance, we are welcomed into the presence of God. And Jesus put the distance between us 
and God to death by taking that distance onto himself. He took the curse of the distance between us and God, of that separation from the Father. He took that onto himself. He, he, he declares on the cross the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he takes the curse onto himself. Right, Jesus' body was torn on the cross. And his communion with the Father was torn so that we could enter in through the torn veil of his flesh. Or we can come near because he was separated from God on our behalf. So there's no more distance between us and God. That curse is broken. I mean, this is why we call it Good Friday every year. Our Savior was given the death penalty on trumped-up charges. We call it Good Friday because the charges against us were real. All the death that we had earned with our sin, he died on the cross. But remember the outer boundaries of the story that are set up at the beginning. How does the sin-swallowing curse-breaking act of Jesus on the cross affect us? Because remember how across time and space the curse-causing act of Adam can be ours simply by being born into the family of Adam. That's the kind of world we live in. Across time and space our actions can affect one another because of a deep covenantal unity. A deep covenantal headship that God established first with Adam. We are born under the headship of Adam. And so we receive what Adam earned. But then we're born again into the headship of Jesus Christ. It's the kind of world where we can be born again and have our sins taken away because of an act of Jesus 2,000 years ago on a different continent, across time and space, because the covenantal unity is real. It's set up that way from the beginning. The Holy Spirit uses covenantal signs and seals in order to bring us into real and true, a real and true connection with Jesus. So when you were baptized, you were really and truly joined to the people of God, to Jesus, and to his people. You were really, truly joined, Paul tells us, to the crossing of the Red Sea. That's the kind of world we live in. You were baptized through the Red Sea with God's people. That became your story. You were really and truly legally joined to the nation of God's people who wandered in the wilderness and received the Ten Commandments. The same people that frustrated Moses so bad so many times. That's you. On Sunday mornings when you come and eat the Lord's Supper, you're joining, you, you are being joined to your people. As we eat manna in the wilderness and Passover lamb. 
This is the kind of world with a deep, deep covenantal unity that exists across time and space that tells us who we are and what's true about us. In fact, when you bring your tithe to church, you're saying that as a child of Abraham, here I am, Lord. This is what we children of Abraham do. It's what we've done from the beginning. Every promise given to Abraham's family is yours in Christ Jesus. Right, that's the ticket. That's the important part about the outer boundaries. That you're, when you're covenantally united to God's people, all of the promises are yours. And all you have to do is keep the covenant. Thankfully, we keep the covenant by faith and not by works. Because we'd be in trouble if we had to keep it by works. But Paul goes out of his way to make sure we understand that all we bring is faith. And even that is a gift that we say thank you for. We come in believing that every promise that God has made to his people is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Because he died. Because he was raised from the dead. And because we're deeply and covenantally united to him. He promised to take away your guilt. And he did. Amen? Right? He promised to take every curse. He promised to take all your shame. He promised to take all your fear. He promised to be a God to your children and to your descendants after you. He promised to provide for you, to protect you, to love you. And he promised to put all things right at the end of time. He promised to sit as judge of the just and the unjust and give eternal life to all those that follow him so that everything is put right the way it was intended to be put right. And he can do that because of the outer boundaries of the story. This is the kind of world where the things that define reality are the deep covenantal unities. The deep covenantal connections across time and across space. And all of it is ours by faith. Now this is the, the doctrine of justification. All of these promises that God makes are ours by faith. And the way that they become ours individually is through baptism and the Lord's Supper and the community life of God's people. And we're going to dig into that more, especially the community life of God's people when we talk about sanctification. But that's because the general promises, right? If, if I just stand up here and I say, God loves you, and you look down the pew and say, ha, I know who he's talking to. He's talking to that person right over there, right? Because it's a general promise. But if you've been baptized then that general promise became yours specifically. Your, the reason that, the, that your name is involved in the baptism is because all the promises of God are being binded to you, bound to you. The same thing with the Lord's Supper. You might think when God's love is declared or when uh, a promise of God is declared that it's for somebody else, but somebody else can't eat the bread and drink the wine for you. They become your promises in particular. 
General promises become personalized. They become signs and seals of the promises to you. And faith is the way that we grasp onto those promises. I've tried to come up throughout the years, I've tried to come up with a good metaphor for this. Because it's something that's really outside of the way we normally think. Um, And this is my current working metaphor. Tell me later if this doesn't work. How many of you, when you go to the fair, have either gotten and or seen somebody with the turkey leg, the deep fried turkey leg? That's always, I've never actually gotten one because they intimidate me. Because I look at that and I think, oh my gosh, even I couldn't eat that thing. And I obviously, I mean, I've eaten my fair share of things. Right? Uh, but if somebody hands you one of those turkey legs, right, and then you take the turkey leg and you eat it, and then you said, you know what's so amazing? I'm full because of my hand. Because it held the turkey leg. Well, that wouldn't make any sense, right? I mean, I guess it left you eight all the way down to your hand, but then you got different problems at that point. Faith is the way we grasp hold of the blessing of God. And the deep fried turkey leg is the blessing of God. But we hold it by faith. And then it turns out that the faith was a gift from God. Romans 5.1 puts it this way. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Everything about our lives stands and falls according to the health and strength of our relationship with God. Everything else stands or falls according to the health and strength of our relationship with God. Your marriage, your family, your city, your your country's politics, I know we don't like to hear that one. Even the health of your church, the central thing is the relationship that it has with God. The fellowship that we have with the Father. And there's no other way for that fellowship to be right except for faith in the crucified Lord. So as we spend tomorrow talking about sanctification... Everything depends upon these outer boundaries. This is the kind of world, the kind of place, the kind of story where a deep and abiding covenantal connection across time and space can affect us in the present. The the actions of one person on the other side uh, of, of the room, on the other side of camp, on the other side of the city, on the other side of the country the other side of the world, that the actions over there can affect our lives. That's the kind of world that we live in. 
where a deep and abiding covenantal connection across time and space between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, that is what ends up affecting everything. And we're going to try and apply it to our lives tomorrow and see the beauty of the wisdom of living according to the death and resurrection of Christ and see what it looks like to try and tell the same story about our lives as God is telling with our lives. But it all depends upon the deep and abiding covenantal connection across time and space between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and our lives in the present. So we'll have fun. We'll talk about more movies, especially we're going to dig into um, The Lion King and learn what, what it is that the Lion King teaches us about sanctification tomorrow night. But, but I, um, if we have, I'll pray, and then I try to not leave any time for questions, because you, you guys intimidate me. So um, let's pray, and then we'll move on. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the kind of world that you made. We thank you for the kind of creature that we are. Lord, we thank you for the interconnectedness that you intend us to live with, we thank you for the community that that makes possible. And Father, we thank you that uh, as we move closer to you, we end up moving closer to one another. And Father, we pray that you would help us to desire to grow into the people that you created us to be. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Is there time? I am happy to take questions. Good. Because <laughs> I got some. <laughs> Actually, I've got to see if I have any text. Any questions, text it to me. Because the bad news is I have 2% left. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were talking to me all day long just to make sure this got yeah, run down. I did. Yes, right? I did. <laughs> just text every ni- 15, 59 <laughs> seconds we'll to keep the light on. But if anyone any comes in here. but. Um, well, first, I do have a couple questions coming out of this. When, when, we, when I think about justification, and as you were talking, and I think many people have this thought, beautiful story, I still feel like I have to do something. It's not all, that's it? I, I feel like I still need to do something. And this is the difference between Christianity and everything else, right? In, in Christianity, God is the one who did something. God, justification was, was God's idea. He wanted to be just and the justifier of sinners. And so he sent his son to die for us. It's a different way of, of even thinking. When, when we were in Santa Cruz, the second um, largest, uh, well, the third largest religion after secularism, which was the largest, and then Christianity was the second largest, which was 4% of the population. The next biggest um, was Rastafarianism. And so, yeah, Rastafari, which if uh, marijuana is a sacrament in Rastafarianism. So it was a lot of white guys that wanted an excuse back when marijuana was illegal to be able to. It's moved up here to Washington. (laughs) It has, yeah. Um, Well, but one of the things that was, and in the, in the process of time, I got to know some of the Rastafarians down there, and they had um, Bob Marley's pastor's son um, was coming through town, 
and he, they wanted a, he wanted us to have, an, they wanted me to have a debate with this guy to talk about the difference between Rastafarianism and Christianity. Um, and right at the heart of it uh, was, he, he, he kept saying, if you get the right ideas in your head, then you will find salvation. You will find your way out of Babylon, which is how they put it. Um, you will find your way out of Babylon. And, but you have to do the work. And he kept saying, you have to do the work. Um, and, <laughs> and I would say, well, that's the difference between Rastafarianism and Christianity. Is Rastafarianism is a Gnostic religion. Christianity is a historic religion. God acted, and we are saved. Right? So that's um, at, at the heart of justification is God acted, and so we are saved. Good, thank you. The other, the other thing I think about is the regularly um, someone will say, okay, I get it. Jesus paid for my sins, and so I can be back in fellowship with God. But why do I still feel so much guilt about what I did? Or why do I feel so much shame about what's been done to me? Yeah. Why is that still there? Well, um, What's really, what's really interesting is Paul talks about it in terms of the habits of the flesh, right? That there are, there are that we have, um, that our identity has been shifted, our sins have been taken away, but we have, the, the habit of feeling guilty is still there. One of the reasons it's so hard for us to get rid of is because we think of guilt primarily as a feeling and then secondarily as something objective. Mm -hmm. We think of it as a, but we're getting the metaphor flipped, right? So a metaphor, you've got the, the, thing, that, the thing you're talking about and then the thing that you're comparing it to. Mm -hmm. So um, Jason's body is like an orange on two toothpicks, right? For example, right? <laughs> the, the thing is my body. Now you're, gonna be, now you're not gonna be able to notice anything else. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but the, the metaphor is the orange on the toothpicks, right? That, but um, in the, the, the metaphor is the guilty feeling. The objective thing is the legal guilt before God, right? It's a, when you say, I feel guilty, you're using a metaphor. The, rea that, um, the reality is the, the guilt is objective because it's a legal thing. Jesus died for that, so you're not guilty anymore. Right? The guilt is gone. The guilty feeling is a habit that's, that's hung around in spite of the fact that you've been declared innocent. Um, and so, so uh, C.S. Lewis in, um, in uh, Pilgrim's Regress describes it as someone uh, for whom the, the, the door of the prison has been ripped off and they've been declared free, and then they forget to leave the cage. <laughs> right? like, You're not guilty anymore. It's like, I know, I know, Whew, but I still feel guilty. It's like, yeah, but you can leave any time. It's like, yeah, I, mean, I still feel guilty, right? You're objectively free. The door is not there. He's been, but by habit, you've stayed around. Mm -hmm. So with guilt, um, a lot of it comes from getting the metaphor flipped back to the right side. I've been freed, and so I'm, I'm no longer guilty. With uh, shame, we have a harder time, I think, uh, in our culture, 
it's becoming, shame is becoming a bigger deal even than guilt. When I was young, you could say, hey, do you feel guilty? And everybody would say, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, when I first started doing evangelism, you know, I'd talk to somebody and be like, man, you know you shouldn't be smoking pot. And they'd be like, I know, but, you know, it feels really good. <laughs> like, yeah, but you shouldn't. I know. I feel guilty about it, but I keep doing it anyway. Within a couple of years, you know, by the early 2000s, I'd say, hey, man, you shouldn't be doing that. And they'd say, why? I don't feel guilty. Well, <laughs> But it's not, the feeling of guilt is not the thing, right? Um, but with that has come, uh, and the, what has come in on that tide that's washed away the feeling of guilt is shame. Um, and we all have those things that we just would be terrified if anybody found out about. You know, we don't want the, 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 the that shame is compared to that, the spiritual nakedness. Um, but that is why Jesus died on the cross naked because he was taking the shame onto himself. So the, 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 the answer to shame is actually as the exact same as the answer to guilt. The shame has been removed. Now, we're all Presbyterians, so we are all still quietly hiding, <laughs> hiding all of our emotions, like, you know, <laughs> good Scots. Um, and we're all, and half of the men in here are dressed in Costco clothes. And, you know, so I, I understand us, right? I've, I've got my Costco shorts on. And, uh, we, 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 we feel like we've got a, that respectability is, um, is expected of us from God, right? Uh, but in fact... What's expected us from God is all the unrespectable parts are walked right up to the cross and laid down, right? Because Jesus died naked. Um, and, you know, in old sculptures, he was often sculpted naked. And then um, you see if in the history of sculpture, he was sculpted naked. And then he slowly is more and more clothing is put on him, um, through the high middle ages, you know, he start, they start clothing his nakedness because they, it's shameful to put a naked Jesus up there. Well, yeah, that's actually the point because he was taking all of our shame, shame. onto himself. Um, and so uh, it's a forg- the, the feelings of guilt and the feelings of shame, it's the same thing, is that at the cross, Jesus took those things onto himself, um, all of the curses, because shame is one of the curses that comes from sin. If I take, if I stop the habits of, if I ha- stop the habits of feeling guilty, I put on instead the habits of thankfulness. Thankfulness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And practicing thankfulness and understanding forgiveness. We got a movie question. Here's a movie question. All right. Came in. What What is the relationship between science and religion? This is. It, it's all connected. What is the relationship between science and religion? Is science the method we use for understanding reality or truth? Or are they both, both based on faith? But then this is tied to here. What do you think about the movie E.T.? Does science spoil everything as the movie depicts? <laughs> oh, man. So E.T. is a fantastic movie. I mean, it just, it's, a great, it's a really great, very tightly told screenplay. It's got great outer boundaries, right? Because it sets up before the story gets going. You get the, you, you get the alien... The, spaceship shows up and then the guy with the keys 
that chases the alien into the woods. And so you know that it's an alien story, and then it just cuts to brothers fighting because they're brothers, right? It's a brotherly affection. One brother is just pounding on the other. Um, and you know that this is an alien movie because of that opening scene. Um, they also shoot everything from the alien's perspective uh, so that the camera is down below, and so you get the, the whole thing is shot like a kid's perspective. Um, it's a really great movie, technically, um, and the writing is really good, too. I forget the question, because I just started thinking about how good that movie is. Oh, um, the science. science. So, well, here's what's interesting. The word science used to just mean the study of a body of knowledge. And theology used to be called the queen of the sciences, um, because it was one body of knowledge that was um, considered the one by which everything else was uh, defined. And then what you had in the late 1800s um, into the early 1900s, you had a gentleman, the same gentleman that termed, that coined the term homo sapien. Um, he, he began shifting the, uh, he, he, he shifted mankind away from its own kind of creature to an animal um, and then uh, up in Northern Europe and the, in, fr in France at the exact same time in the encyclopedist movement, you had theology shifted to a subcategory of philosophy and philosophy was divided into philosophies of mind and philosophies of physics, right? You had science, scientific philosophies and then you had rationalistic philosophies and so right at the same time that mankind started to be treated as an animal and no longer its, its own kind of special creature that God created itself, you had theology and science put as um, oppositional forces. So um, that is not a Christian way of understanding uh, the categorization of knowledge or the categorization of mankind, right? So... Um, you have all of this happening all at the same time, but now we just assume it. I was a philosophy major in college, and you had to take a theology class, and that meant you could study Buddhism, Taoism. Um, I took Hinduism for my theology class, uh, or you could take New Testament or Old Testament. Right? And I didn't want to take New Testament or Old Testament from the University of Idaho, so I took Hinduism. Um, and and, had, and had to watch an old 70-year-old man do yoga in the front of the class, and I was like, I made a mistake. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a Christian understanding of knowledge is that there is one body of knowledge that, that people as creatures can have. God has a particular kind of knowledge, and then we as creatures have a different kind of knowledge because we are created, we have a limited knowledge, but it is, there's a single body of knowledge. And so anything that is true is not in opposition to anything else that's true. Right? So there isn't a, a science versus religion in reality. Right? That's only something that you do um, after you have gotten rid of the creator-creature divide and started to think that man is not... Um, doesn't have a special place in relationship to the world and the creator. That was a really long answer to a simple question. Um, but it answered it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but in Star Wars or Star Trek, they never got to Bully Bill. 
No, Star Trek is like... No, I mean, they never got to Boligo, where no man has ever gone before. That place, Boligo. That's, Boligo. That's there's what a, I always thought it was. There's a pun in there. I'm trying to... Instead of boldly go. <laughs> no, boldly yeah. go. A bunch of kids. Bunch of kids so they, go. In Star when Trek are they ever going to get to four, <laughs> In Star Trek four, they did get to heaven and meet God, who turned out to be created by Q. It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. So Star Trek has some great writing, but it's an awful universe. Yep. It's like the Game of Thrones of the sixties. <laughs> Well, thank you, Jason. It's 8.30, so I, there's too many kids who are waiting for a bonfire and s'mores. So, but we have to take care, take care of some announcements first. So 